I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk the podcast. Look, as you can see, I'm in the welcome area of our new mission-based clinic in Central Kentucky, and I could not be more excited uh, to be able to get out of the back room and our other little spots where we've been to be here in this beautiful space that God has so generously given us. And so, again, I want to thank you for watching, if you're watching on YouTube, and if you are listening the old way <laughs> uh, on the podcast only, be sure that you still uh, know about our uh, podcast availability on YouTube so that you can refer other therapists and parents too because this is such an important topic. Today is show number 386 and we're actually going to be continuing our series from 385 with the 11 pre-linguistic skills that all toddlers master before they begin to talk. Now I've done a series of podcasts about this before and I have a book about this. It's called Let's Talk About Talking, a gigantic therapy manual. So if you want to get more information about this topic, you can always check that out at my website at teachmetotalk.com. All right, last week we started this show, and I ran through all 11 skills. But then in going back and editing and listening and thinking about the show last week, I didn't talk about some really important things. So before we get into skill one and the particulars of that, I want to go back and lay some additional uh, groundwork, especially if you are the parent of a late talker, and especially if you are new to Teach Me to Talk and new on this journey with your child and you are, you are considering all of your possibilities. And a lot of times parents, again, when, we ha when we're working with a child with a language delay, we get so hyper-focused or almost obsessed about the talking piece and don't really think about words and, and all, all of the things that go into helping a child learn how to communicate. Now, talking is only a part of communicating and actually it's the very last part that develops if we are looking at all of these pre-linguistic skills. And so, as we talked about last week, there are actually 11 skills that come before we can realistically expect a child to uh, learn how to use words. And this is a surprise to a lot of parents because as and I'll just take you through my own experience. And if you are a therapist, no matter whether uh, you are a developmental therapist or an educator or a speech-language pathologist like me or even an OT uh, or a PT working in early intervention, so many times, again, when parents come in and a child isn't talking or isn't walking or isn't doing whatever the, the chief complaint is, parents think that that's where we start that we start with whatever the big thing is. But no matter what skill we're working on, there are always these prerequisites that lead up to that skill. And I'll tell you, you hardly see a child in an early intervention program or a school-based early intervention program when he's really ready for whatever that end goal seems to be. There are always core skills that are missing well before we get to that, that what we consider the end goal, which for us as speech-language pathologists would be talking and functionally communicating and at an age-appropriate or a developmentally appropriate level. And so we have to really, really talk to parents about that as therapists because they don't know. They think they're going to bring their child in for a session or two and boom, he's going to be talking. And often there's so many things that we have to get in place first. And so that's what this series of shows is about. It's about helping you as a professional recognize all of the core skills, all of the 
foundational skills that you already know, but that you may not be explaining well enough to parents. And again, if you're a therapist, I welcome you to get CE credit for this course and all the courses uh, in this series and my other shows. We started this summer offering CE credit for listening or watching the podcast. So you can get details about that at teachmetotalk.com uh, and just five bucks for an hour's worth of credit. And you cannot beat that deal. So uh, again, check that out if you're a professional. All right, so for parents, let me really really tell you what I tell families who come to see me or families that I've worked with in my I've been saying 25 year career and I realized gosh it's almost 27 now so I better start adjusting my uh, time period but no matter what they're bringing a child into me to, for to see it's it's uh, there's always some version of talking or I can't understand what he says or he's not communicating or whatever and I always tell parents until a child masters all of the skills that come first, we can't even really realistically expect him to know how to communicate with others. And he may manage to pop out a word or two every now and then, but it, we're really not going to get what we consider to be talking or communicating until we get all of these skills firmly in place. And I'll just tell you, I did not do a good enough job explaining this to parents earlier in my career. And even sometimes with me, I would jump ahead and then I would wonder, why is this kid stalled? Why have we been at the same level for week after week or sometimes month after month? And until I really, really, really owned these pre-linguistic skills, I was not as successful as I wanted to be. And then until I explained to parents <laughs> the importance of these pre-linguistic skills, we certainly weren't always on the same page. And so parents had different expectations. And sometimes I might have been really excited about a child's progress and a parent still was a little... Mm, lackluster or I didn't feel like maybe sometimes they were giving their child the credit that he or she should be earning from them or deserved because I realized all the things that their child was mastering but again because I didn't explain it to parents well enough they didn't know so parents weren't celebrating like they should have been celebrating because I didn't do a good enough job saying hey listen talking for your child might be a long-term goal <laughs> and parents might have expected that their child would use a word within a session or two so again that falls to us as professionals to really 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 be able to explain all of these pre-linguistic skills and here's how I do it now I say like I said in the last show I do not have a crystal ball I don't know when your child will begin to talk but I do know this Pre-linguistic skills predict when a child is ready to talk. And so if we are looking at these 11 skills, and again, we talked about this chart, which is from Let's Talk About Talking in uh, last week's show. When we look at these 11 skills, and if there's just one skill missing, we know that uh, late talking is possible. When there are a couple of skills missing, we know that 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 possibility of late talking really um, significantly increases. So when we when we have a child who's missing, say, five or six of these skills, my goodness, we're looking then at a moderate to a severe delay. And so when we have children that are missing lots and lots of these skills, we have to really explain to parents how, again, the nature of pre 
pre-linguistic skills about the predictability here that words will be a, again a, a goal that we want to hear because we always want to remain hopeful but at the same time it's a longer term focus so I wanted to be sure to share that here at the at the beginning of this second show in the series since I didn't talk about that a lot last week and again if you're a parent and you're hearing this and you think oh, I listened to show 385 and my, my kid's not doing you know he's only doing six of these we're we lack five of these and then you start to realize if maybe you get the manual or you start looking at this more closely or start listening to the shows and really reading about what I've written um, about these skills at teachmetotalk.com and then you realize of the six skills that he that I say that he has he hasn't really mastered those those are still emerging skills and so don't get discouraged don't I, I want you to still hang on to hope this is just to let you know how much hard work your child is going to have to do and again it's not that it can't be done I don't want to diminish the possibility of, of making fast progress and, and let me tell you your best shot at doing that is not going to be on working on words it's going to be working on all these prerequisite things that come before we can realistically expect a child to talk so uh, and it doesn't matter whether that happens again at at 12 months where um, all of these skills really are mastered by children by 12 months because that's when we are 12 to 18 months when we first start to see words emerge and it doesn't matter if that happens for your child at 12 months or at 24 months or at three and a half you know it doesn't matter how old your child is these are the skills that we have to work on and so again that's what this whole series of shows is going to be about and I wanted to make sure that you understood that before we move forward um, and again the, when, when we're talking about this another important point to talk about at the very beginning is there is individuality and variability in, in how children acquire these skills but you know, uh, a, a, a sentence like every child is different or every kid is different, that sort of leads parents astray. Because then sometimes we hear that and we think, oh, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that he's not talking today, that he's not pointing today, that he doesn't follow very many commands. He's going to wake up tomorrow morning and I'm going to go get him out of his crib and he'll be talking in full sentences. That doesn't happen. <laughs> you might hear about an eccentric thing that happens every now and then, but realistically, toddlers follow a broad pattern of development. And again, that doesn't matter whether they talk on time in that 12 to 18 month period or whether they are later talkers or have a language delay. We can really expect all children to follow that broad pattern of development. And so that's what we're going to be talking about in these shows. Okay, so last week we ran through the 11 skills. And let me just do that again, just for the sake of if, you, if you're joining me today in this in this show and you didn't listen or watch last week's show, I want to run through these because without the looking at the full range, I'm scared that you'll get kind of lost in this. And so the skill that we're talking about today is skill number one, reacts to events in the environment. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that. This means that a child can consistently react to things that he see, sees, things that he hears, things that he feels, uh, and again, things he processes, incoming sensory information. The second skill is that a child responds then to people, or he responds when other people start to talk with him or play with him. So when other people make the attempt to communicate with him, he knows what to do. He, he responds back. Even if he's not talking yet, he's engaged, he's interacting. The third skill, <coughs> excuse me, is that a child takes turns with you during interactions. Again, he's not just responding, he's waiting then for you after you've initiated that communication that interaction 
He does something to let you know. And we'll talk about today what responding looks like. Or actually, let's go ahead and talk about that. What is a response? A child has to do something different after you talk to him than he was doing before for you to count it as a response. If he still looks the same. So if, he, if you try to talk to him and you're walking in and say, let's say that you're saying something like, <coughs> excuse me, good morning, Brandon. And Brandon has no change in expression. He doesn't turn and look toward you. He doesn't do. He doesn't change his. Uh, he's not smiling more. His eyes aren't widened. And again, he didn't redirect his gaze. You can't really count that as a response. We've got to see something. And and sometimes, especially the more significantly impaired a child is, and especially if he has another medical diagnosis in addition to his uh, language delay, will sometimes. Uh, will sometimes give him credit. <clears throat> Excuse me, let me take a drink. It's the last week in September, and I usually have uh, my fall allergies. I usually have laryngitis this week, so I'm actually so happy that I still have a voice. <laughs> okay, so back to the responding. Sometimes when a child has a really significant developmental issue, we presume competence, and that is a very, that's a big movement. And I get that. I get that we never want to not give a child credit for something that he or she can do. But sometimes when we do that, when we, when we overestimate a child's skills, it really doesn't do anything positive for that child because then we, never, we give him credit for things that he can't do and then we assume that he can do it. And then we, we, we start at a level that's too high for a child. And then again, he, he's making no progress and we wonder what's wrong. It's because we haven't gone back and really looked at those foundational skills. And again, we're overestimating his ability to do whatever it is that we've overestimated. And so when we do that, when we say he, he understands everything, which is something, oh my goodness, parents say that kind of universally about a child that's not talking. You'll ask them about that and they'll say, he really does understand everything. And then you'll say, let's how well does he follow directions? And they'll say, not at all. Do you see the gap there? <laughs> Do you see how a child, that a parent says he understands everything, yet you, you, you don't see any evidence of that, meaning that he doesn't follow any commands. He doesn't point to any pictures. He doesn't, when you ask him, he doesn't do any little body parts. He doesn't participate in any social games with you. He doesn't really do anything that gives a parent uh, kind of a foundation or a base a basis for saying that other than they just think that he does and so when when we do that we really shortchange that child because then we don't teach him things that he needs to know and we let him go for weeks and weeks or months and months <clears throat> excuse me without making any progress and then we may not make that adjustment because we didn't realistically look at where he's truly functioning and so again as a parent you need to really be aware of that. That's why sometimes, you know, it's so hard as a therapist for me to tell a parent something like, you know, your child's really functioning still, even though he's two, he's really down at about that six-month level. And sometimes we get so reluctant to share that big of a gap because we don't want to hurt a parent's feelings. You know, I'll just, I'll just oh, avoid that as just as, as hard as I avoid anything in my life is hurting a parent's feelings. But at the same time, we have to be realistic because if we don't address all of these skills, if we don't go back to the very beginning where a child first starts to have difficulty, we're never going to have a realistic shot at helping that child make 
miserable gains and, and as, as fast progress as we want him to make because we're working at the wrong level. So uh, I wanted to be sure that we're talking about that really early on. So back to skill number three. We said skill number one was reacts to events in the environment. Skill number two is responds to people. Skill number three is takes turns with you during interaction, that back and forth reciprocity, which is so important for communicating because it always takes two people to communicate and the child has to do his part too. Number four, develops a longer attention span. Number five, shares and shifts joint attention with others. Number six, plays appropriately with a variety of toys. Number seven, understands early words and follows simple directions. So that's the receptive language piece. And again, parents so often overestimate that. So we wanna really, really be sure that we're looking at all of these skills and getting a true, a true measure of where a child is functioning. Skill number eight is vocalizes or makes sounds purposefully. Skill number nine is imitates actions, gestures, sounds, and words. Skill number 10 is uses early gestures like waving and pointing. And then skill number 11 is initiates interaction. And again, those are all the things that every child who's not communicating has to master before we can realistically expect him or her to talk. So today we're beginning at the beginning, <laughs> as I like to say, and we're looking at skill number one. And as I told you, these skills really do emerge in typically developing children or children with typically developing language skills. Uh, by that 12 to 18 month level. And so when we are talking about children who are older than that, you know, we are naturally going to know that their language is not developing as we would expect. And so we do have to not just kind of start again at that 12 to 18 month level where we're looking at imitating words. We have to look at all these other things first. And so by beginning at the beginning, we're gonna go back and look at the very roots of language development and this first skill, this first very pre-linguistic skill. And remember, pre-linguistic just means pre is before and linguistic is language or words. So at the very beginning, what's the very first thing that we could expect a child to do? And that would be reacts to events in the environment. And really, this happens even with newborn babies. They come into this world with their little sensory systems just primed and ready to process that incoming information. So this, again, refers to how a child responds to what he sees. So we'll think about this in terms of your, of your five senses, to what he sees, what he hears, and what he can feel. So his touch system, also his uh, vestibular system, his proprioceptive system, what he can feel, those movement systems. It also includes how he learns how to use his little hands and his little arms, how he manipulates objects. And so again, all of these things, he has to be able to understand uh, what's going on in the world around him. That's the very first thing that we wanna be sure. When there's been an uncomplicated pregnancy and birth and there are no immediate issues, that's when newborns really, again, begin to process these things. So we know that for children who do have sensory impairments like hearing loss, like visual impairments, or kids who have their motor systems, we know that there's a neurological diagnosis that, that will affect how they acquire movement. So we expect if they have extremely high muscle tone or, or low muscle tone that they're going to have some difficulties in learning how to move their little bodies, which would mean they have difficulty from the beginning in learning how to roll over, they don't creep or crawl when we expect them to, they're not pulling to stand, certainly their walking is delayed. And so all of these things really, really, again, come together developmentally. And you may say, Laura, what in the world does walking have to do with talking? 
everything. <laughs> and we will have children who have motor systems who who uh, who are delayed or disordered with their motor systems who do learn how to talk. But for the most part, when there are difficulties with the child's entire little body, and again, that motor system, we expect for there to be communication delays as well because speech is a motor movement too. And so again, if you're a therapist and you're not really clearly explaining these things to parents, you know, we have to do a better job of that. And so many times I've worked with parents over the years. Again, if I were the their main therapist, you know, working in an early intervention program and they were they were under under my uh, caseload and care from the very beginning or whether I'm the consulting therapist where, I, you know, I'm the fifth opinion or 15th opinion. Sometimes I'll meet families who have children with really significant medical diagnoses and significant developmental delays across the board yet no one has really really explained that that all talking again won't uh, may not be realistic at all or that talking again would be a longer term goal so we have to do a super job as therapists and again therapists spend more time with parents than physicians do or any other kind of medical specialist so it's really really up to us to help explain the significance of a child's delay. And again, not to take away hope, not to say that, that we don't think talking is realistic or communicating. You know, all kids are gonna learn, can learn how to communicate, even if they're not really using their little voices. And so we have to really, really make sure we're doing a good job of that. And if you, the reason that I'm really honed in on this is when we begin at the beginning like this and start talking to parents about reacting to events in the environment, th these are really children who, again, have some pretty significant neurological or physical things that are going on with them. And so we have to talk with parents uh, uh, about that and about the significance of that so that they really, really understand and really get, uh, oh, my goodness, talking is going to be super, super hard. So let's just talk about what it looks like when a child is reacting to events in the environment. Well, that means that a kid is alert and he seems to be taking in what's going on around him. He notices when things happen, so he reacts. He reacts to noises. So you'll see that change in his face, even if he, again, his mobility is limited and his little body, again, doesn't move as we would expect it to, he still reacts. We can see his eyes widen. We can see him shift his head. We might see him move his little body. That's an indication. That's a response. He, he's heard something. He knows something, or he's seen something. He knows something is, or felt something. He knows something's going on around him. Other things that kids do when they're processing incoming information or when they're reacting to events in the environment, they track moving objects with their eyes. They explore toys by reaching out and feeling them and touching them and mouthing them or banging them. They start to do those things. And also, another thing that happens that lets me really, really know when a baby or a child with a more significant developmental issue is uh, really processing incoming information, it's when they start to look bored. <laughs> when you have not changed their scenery or put them in a different spot or given them something new to do, they do start to kind of, you start to see them kind of check out a little bit. And then you introduce something new and boy, they're right back with you. You can see that reaction. And so we have to really, really look for that, especially in our little friends with very significant impairments. And we have to really talk to parents about being so observant with that and not just giving a kid the benefit of the doubt or not just assuming that he's reacting. We've really got to 
help parents see when there's been a physical change so that they can know. And, and again, why is that? Is that to tell a parent, look, Again, is it to take away that hope, you know, and say he's not responding at all? Absolutely not. It's so that a parent knows that they have to change their approach. We know that we have to do some things different to get that real consistent response. So how do we know when a kid is not reacting to events in the environment? Well, he's not startling when he hears noises or not reacting, doesn't seem to be able to watch things that move. And again, a kid may be, seem to be preoccupied when we introduce something new. So we don't really get a change in that. And so we talk to him and he still stays flat. Or we have a musical toy and you really don't see him looking for it or anything like that. Now I will say that there, because this is on YouTube now, there will be um, some of you who are probably watching this are parents who are, again, your kid isn't even one yet, but you are trying to do everything you can to help your baby develop and to get all these skills in place. Or maybe you already know that there's a predetermined uh, diagnosis. So there's something that's letting you know, even if you have a child that's just a few months old, that a communication delay is likely. And so in this situation, you know, you're, uh, again, you are trying to be as proactive as you can. So um, I just applaud your efforts for that. And so there will be some parents who are watching like that. Another uh, big thing here is that a, an adult may question a child's ability to see or hear. And so you may have a toddler that doesn't react when you call his name, who doesn't seem to listen to uh, spoken language, who doesn't consistently, again, respond to other people. A lot of times parents will say that, and then, but they've never gotten that child's hearing tested. And that's a, just kind of a no-brainer. So, and again, I don't mean that derogatory. If you're listening and you haven't gotten a hearing eval, and I've said that, and that's been offensive to you, I'm so sorry. I, I don't, again, I don't mean to offend you. But when we, have these, when we have things like that, if we feel like a child can't see, we need to take care of that. We need to address that and get that assessment um, again completed and lots of times therapists have to drive that process so as a therapist or as a professional be sure that you're talking to parents about that young children who don't consistently react usually have a known medical diagnosis like we've already talked about again they may have a visual or a hearing impairment there or hearing loss and they're going to struggle with uh, long-term significant delays across <coughs> excuse me all developmental areas and again this would include their communication skills so why is reacting to environmental events important for language? Because this is where everything begins. <laughs> Children have to have something to talk about, right? And they have to, again, be processing in a very concrete way what's going on around them in their world. And a toddler who's not able to alert and react and respond to the environment is not going to be developmentally ready to learn to understand and use words and words again are very symbolic and so it's more abstract it's a higher level than the things that we're going to be talking about today which are really really concrete things you know what a, uh, you know objects that a child can see uh, sounds that a child can hear objects that he can feel and manipulate and so again when we have a kid who's really struggling to process and react to things at that concrete level there's no way that he's really ready for words. And so we, I love this quote, and this is from uh, Charles uh, Catania. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. And it's really from an ABA book or Applied Behavioral Analysis. But this, this is one of my favorite quotes about learning and language development. We can't do anything with words until they are built on what was there 
before words existed. So for me as a language person, that means I've got to teach a child about the world, about, about what's right in front of him environmentally. And again, until he knows that and is really consistently interacting with these things, we don't have anything. We don't have a foundation there for words to develop. So what is our prerequisite goal here? When is the toddler ready to work on this? Well, today, <laughs> because this is what comes first. So once a child is medically stable, parents are really ready to work on these kinds of things. And again, most babies are born with the ability to react to environmental events. And when there's no medical emergency, this is when we move on. This is where we start. And again, if you are a therapist, any child who's having difficulty with this, we need to be super, super honest with parents from the beginning so that they understand what a difficult road their child will have in learning how to communicate. Now, the good news is that we can help parents learn to read their child's responses. We can do lots of things to facilitate a child responding and reacting to things in his environment. And so, again, not to take away hope from parents, but we want to do this one-on-one -on -one with parents so that they really learn how to read their baby's cues and so uh, that they are doing everything that they can to set the stage for uh, this first pre-linguistic skill, or this first foundation for language. So let's move along now, and we've already talked about what this skill is, reacting to events in the environment. We've talked about why it's important, how it relates to communication skill development. Now let's get to the best part. Let's get to intervention, which is where I get so excited because this is the bread and butter, and this is where we make a big, 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 big difference as therapists and as professionals because we're not going to just share the, the disappointing news that your child has a significant language delay, but we're going to say, and now this is what we're going to do about it. So this is how we'll address it. So what are the strategies? What are the things that we get in place? And again, the younger a child is, <coughs> excuse me, the more important, <coughs> pardon me, the younger a child is, the more important it is to get these things going. And then the more significantly delayed a child is, the more important it is to get these things going too. And so again, some of you may be listening to this and thinking, uh, this show isn't for me. <laughs> My child is well past that. Good for you. Congratulations. And again, this might be just for a limited number of parents who are watching but it's so important for therapists, and even if you're thinking, I, I don't really work with kids like this, or this isn't, you know, this isn't my niche, you never know when life's going to throw you a curveball, <laughs> and you're going to change jobs, or you'll suddenly get lots of children with these kinds of issues on your caseload, or let's say you live in a rural area like me, and uh, providers are limited, and so you may not have ever treated children with this uh, starting way back at the beginning like this, but it doesn't mean that you don't need these skills in your repertoire uh, so that you are ready when you need them to happen. So let's talk about what these strategies are. And let me just say, at the beginning of all of these, at this section, when we start to talk about strategies, and I tell parents this very, very directly, before we can change a child, do you know what we have to do? We have to change ourselves first. So that means we adjust our approaches. We adjust what we are doing. And that makes it so much easier, <clears throat> excuse me, pardon me, than thinking I have to always do something with a child. So lots of times as therapists, we're spending time teaching a parent what they're going to do differently rather than focusing on what that child is doing. And so I think that's a super, super important uh, point to make. So what do we do first? 
with this uh, skill number one, reacts to events in the environment. Well, number one, we have to give a child things to explore. And so remember we've said that children in this developmental phase really are learning to experience the world through their senses. So we have to give him lots of different opportunities for exposure. And I like to say that word exposure because that puts it right on the parents because sometimes with parents when we're working with them and we're talking about their child they'll just really kind of say well he doesn't do it I, I don't know what else to do you know and they really kind of check out a little bit they put it all on the kid rather than it's on us particularly with children who are in this uh, still in this developmental phase and again this would be kind of that birth to six month earliest phase of development and so even if a child again is two and has a significant developmental issue that that he's still in this developmental period it's really 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 up to us as adults to uh, provide these opportunities so to provide this exposure provide this practice so that a child can consistently learn how to respond and so that's something again that parents um, may not really really be um, used to thinking about that it's up to them to give their child things to explore it's up to them to give their child new new things to see and hear and feel and touch and so we have to really really talk about that and sometimes when I talk with parents especially again if I'm seeing a child who's say three and not walking and they're certainly not talking and they're big time developmental issues going on I'll talk to parents about backing up to this point and sometimes again their feelings are a little bit hurt because they'll say you know I've already put those baby toys away or we just don't do that anymore because I just felt like he was too old for that guys we have to meet children where they are and so realistically if a child is still in this phase that's again reality <laughs> and so we have to help a parent understand that and we always have to start not with what the goal is but where a child is currently functioning like if we if our goal is to run a marathon we don't start with going you know the the 26 miles for that or whatever it is we don't start on day one running the whole distance I mean you can't do it it's unrealistic same thing with talking. If a child is here at this earliest developmental level, this is where we start, not at the end goal. All right, so that's number one. We're going to give a child something to explore. And so I'll be talking about some really specific things to do. But as you're working with parents here, you're going to say, again, you're going to keep it with, let's stimulate his five senses. So he needs things he can see. He needs things he can hear. He needs things that he can feel and touch and manipulate. And so uh, talk to parents about that. That's the number one recommendation you're going to make. You know, and I'm just shocked by how many families, and let's just get real honest here, don't have toys. <laughs> I mean, it's shocking. They have lots of other things, but they don't have toys. And so you have to really talk parents through that too. And a lot of times we'll say things like, a family doesn't have very many resources or uh, you know there are just other other factors and I get that but this is our job you know we have to do this as adults as parents as professionals who work with parents and so we have to really really talk parents through that and give them practical ways to do it now as soon as I finish the podcast today I'm going to video a therapy tip of the week about this skill reacting to events in the environment and I'm going to show you some really inexpensive toys that I picked up yesterday at Walmart <laughs> and so for about 30 bucks I got several different things that fall into these categories of what a child can see and hear and touch and uh, manipulate and so 
I, it doesn't take a lot of money to get this going. And again, you can use a lot of just environmental things as far as what a child can see. Uh, we're, I'm sort of getting my, ahead of myself here, but we move him to different spots. We change the scenery so that he is in a different place in their home. And so he might be in the den and doing, you know, looking at his family and, and you know, different people are moving. The TV might be on, which isn't that great. But, you know, again, a different kind of visual thing. When he's in the kitchen, it's going to be totally different. If he's uh, uh, in front of a door or a window, certainly has some different opportunities uh, to see different things there too. And so, uh, again, this is something even without a lot of money, a family can accomplish these things and, and, and be sure that we provide some different opportunities here. All right, proximity is a priority. That's our second strategy here. So what does that mean? That means that a child can't explore anything that's too far away. So we have to be sure that we're getting things close, that we place the things where a child can see it, hear it, feel it, touch it, and we have to move her closer to events that are happening around her. You know, if you have a kid and there's a helium balloon in the room, and you just keep trying to get them to look at the balloon, look at the balloon, see the balloon, all the things that you're doing, and they don't have joint attention yet, so they're not able to follow your point, what do we do? We either move her closer to the balloon or move the balloon closer to her. And again, some of these recommendations for families, you think, Laura, that is so simple. Surely, surely I will offend a parent when I talk about that. You won't. And a lot of times we don't start with those really, really basic recommendations and then we never, we never kind of get there with a family and then they're still kind of wondering why things aren't moving along. It's because we didn't take the time to really st begin at the beginning <laughs> and uh, get a parent really, really uh, right there getting those things going that are so, so important that are really basic and foundational. And you can't expect a parent to do these things that are a lot more technical when they're not doing the basics. And so be sure that you're really talking about proximity and uh, making sure that a parent understands that and gets that. If we want a kid to see something or look at something, move the object closer to her or move her closer to the object. We already talked about changing the scenery often, and that's, again, so important, especially for our little uh, friends who have mobility issues when they can't get there themselves. And I tell parents, you know, how would you feel if you were relegated to bed rest all day? How would that feel for you? You know, and a lot of moms have had bed rest during uh, complicated pregnancies. And so they'll get that. They'll say, that was terrible for me. I hated being in one place all the time. I was bored to tears. I was so frustrated because I couldn't get up and do the things that I'd done. And then you just kind of say, you know, that's, that's how your baby feels too. And so we talk parents through that and really talk about moving a child from room to room to room with them. You know, so many families now, have just sections of their homes and I've seen this you know for uh, as long as I've practiced we've had ways to kind of contain children so that we have a playpen or we have again they stay in their cribs most of the day or they have a little a little gated section where a child stays and that's just that we've got to help parents move beyond that and they're doing it for safety and I get it but their child's uh, incoming sensory experiences are so limited. So really watch that containerizing of children or compartmentalizing. And when you start to talk about it that way, and when you use it in the context of bed rest, a mom really, really gets it because that's, that's something that she has not probably didn't want to do and wasn't too crazy about. Another thing that we need to do strategy-wise is don't overuse devices, and I just said this, that limit a baby's ability to move. And so again, with children with mobility problems, it's really common for a parent to keep them in the whatever uh, seating arrangement they're using. 
keep them in their specialized chair or keep them in a swing or keep them in a stroller. I, I, I just can't stress enough how important it is to give a baby and a child opportunities to move and opportunities to see and feel and be in different spaces. And again, if I had an OT or PT on the show, I know they'd talk about tummy time. And especially if you're a parent who's watching this series of shows proactively, you know that your child is likely to have a communication delay. That's one thing that you can do today is really start to um, use tummy time, use moving a child from location to location, even within your own home. You know, that's, that's a really practical recommendation. Another thing we can do for a child who's not consistently responding is to model reactions ourselves. And so in teaching a child to react to different things and new things in his environment, we have to do that. We have to get excited when we see something new or get excited about feeling a toy or get excited about hearing a noise. So when we hear something like, um, I don't know if you've noticed the horns, <laughs> people parking, you know, our uh, new clinic is right in a, a strip shopping center. And so, you know, if I were here and I were working with a child who had difficulty reacting to environmental events and the somebody locked their car so we heard their horn I would go you know and really model that reaction and again does that really if a child doesn't have joint attention and he's not really responding to people does he really get that yet maybe not but we've started to model that reaction and so when he is developmentally ready and and we've we've done our part here because we are uh again demonstrating what a child should do a lot of times parents too with children with really really significant um, developmental delays get in the habit of sort of under responding and so they are not and, and they think again you know my child isn't and they're really realistic about their child's status and so they think well he doesn't really understand that or he's not really responding to noises or you know he has a hearing loss that oh my goodness that's exactly when we should really really amp up our own emotional affect or our own arousal level so that we um, almost overreact so that we really help a child learn the importance of listening or learn the importance of seeing something and directing his attention to something and so again um, look at that look at what you can do with that now some children will respond to environmental events or new toys and things better when we do take a softer approach and so you'll just have to see what the child's sensory system will allow uh, sometimes I scare children <laughs> because I'm too animated and too too loud sometimes or too on sometimes for children and their little systems can't take it they're kind of shutting down and so you'll really have to judge that but for our friends who are usually at this level it's children who are pretty flat and who aren't as responsive so we want to amp it up we want to as I say ratchet it up a notch so you'll have to talk with parents about that and figure out what a child's when a child responds best if it's that close kind of softer gentler approach or whether a child needs a little bit more fanfare and we'll talk about that a lot next week's show with responding to people but I wanted to really talk about it today too in terms of when we introduce a new toy we should model affect we should model a reaction so that a child again has has a demonstration of how he or he or she should be responding and reacting 
Another thing we need to do that really relates closely to the proximity piece is try various positions to see what uh, a child, how a child will respond best. And again, sometimes he needs to be closer before he notices things. Sometimes children respond best when they're seated upright. Sometimes it's when they're on their tummies on the floor. Sometimes they respond better when they are holding the object, but sometimes if uh, they respond better when you are holding the object and so you'll just have to do some experimenting to see and you know with a child's physical needs or sensory needs again there will be some variability with that some kids might uh, respond better in seated in their chair or some kids might respond better if you're holding them in your your lap so that they feel that closeness and they get that body on body contact so experiment with that to um see where we can get our best responses and remember our overall goal here is to help late talkers learn to understand words before they begin to use words and so we have to do a lot of adjusting what we're going to do to make that more likely and so if uh, if our overall goal here is language even with uh, children in this level at this developmental level even before we get to the point of talking about responding to people which goes so closely you know children newborns are mastering this at the same time responding to events and responding to people we need to go ahead and talk about what's going on in this developmental phase with parents and we're really setting the stage for language development and and kids who are at this developmental level don't understand what words mean yet it's our job to help them link a word with what the uh, object is and so even at this phase, we're going to talk to parents about how they talk to their children. And so a kid can't learn language unless he hears words. And so sometimes we really do have parents who aren't talking very much to their children or parents who are over-talking. So they are narrating all day long which again, with children who are typically developing, we, we want that, but we so want parents who are, uh, again, meeting children where they are at that child's developmental level. And so instead of saying something like, with my, my Yeti here, my cup, my glass, my drink, uh, instead of saying, oh my goodness, you know, I have my Coke Zero uh, poured over ice in my Yeti so that I can keep it with me all day and have something so that I can drink. Don't you think that's a good idea? Instead of saying that <laughs> to a child who's in this developmental level, what would you say? You would say, ooh, cup, mama's cup. Look, ooh, it's cold. You want to feel? Here, you, I'll put it on you. Ooh, it's cold. And so can you see the difference there? How being very, very child-focused and driven with where that child is developmentally and tailored into sensory experiences where you're going to have the child feel the cold drink, where you're showing him the cup so that he can see it. You may jiggle it so that he can hear it. That's what we're talking about here is really, really meeting a child where he is developmentally and, and, and making sure that, again, we give him opportunities, not just with our words, but we talk about how that child processes that uh, sensory information. And we, and we just did it by, you know, look at my cup, hear the ice in my cup, feel how cold it is. And again, we're doing that. We're providing that opportunity there. Be sure that you are using actions and gestures to supplement your words at this point. Again, with our example here with the cup, I'm pointing to the cup, I'm showing the child the cup, I'm, I'm making uh, some uh, 
Again, my actions are making it more visually salient or more important in that child's environment because I'm moving the object closer and closer to the child. And so we're gonna direct his attention to these events or the toys or objects or whatever we're using, not only with our words, but with our actions as well. And it's not always about two, it's not always about exactly what you say, it's kind of how you say it. So if you're saying something like, oh look, there's a dog, versus wow, doggy, listen, woof, 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 did you hear the dog? Look, look, dog. Can you see the difference there? And again, that's another example like we just did with the cup, with, with helping a child learn how to respond and helping a child learn how to react versus uh, just counting on our words alone. So be sure that you're talking with parents about that and that you are uh, helping them understand just how important a role they play, even at this developmental level. And that we, again, are really, really setting the stage for language development by helping a child learn how to react. And we talked about modeling reactions before, but this is really, really important too when we're looking at uh, toys here. And again, kids in this developmental level aren't really ready to play with toys yet. They're just exploring them, again, usually just by touch or manipulating the objects, uh, again, in the, in the most basic kind of way. But even at this developmental level, we have to show a child how to use the object or how to explore the object. And, and parents miss that. They'll just kind of, uh, they'll hear me say, you know, we've got to give a child things to see and things to hear and things to touch and manipulate. But they'll just sort of put the objects out and have their baby there or their toddler there, however old the child is, without really realizing that we have to do a lot of getting down with them and helping a child learn what to do with it and helping a child learn how to play. And with typically developing babies, it, it we really do just a lot of times just kind of set the stage and then walk away and think that it'll happen on its own. But when we have kids with these developmental challenges, that never works. And so exploration doesn't mean just put it out there and see what happens. It means that you show him exactly what you want him to do. So now let's kind of move on and talk about these recommended materials and activities for helping a toddler or a, a child learn how to react to events in his or her environment. So again, remember, we want to give a child things that he can explore, things that he can process or react to with um, everything in his uh, little sensory system, so things he can see. So that would be like an unbreakable mirror, mobiles that we use, pictures of faces and books, little vinyl books that a kid can use, uh, those kinds of things. Anything, a visual toy, so things with lights, anything that looks interesting to a child. Next, let's move on to that auditory system or things a child can hear. So this would be toys that uh, crinkle and squeak and rattle and ring. Music toys are certainly a big um, option here for parents. Uh, but don't always do that. Think about other kinds of things too. And actually in the therapy tip of the week, I'm going to show you some things and demonstrate some things. So look for the therapy tip of the week that says you know, toys to help a child react to events in the environment. Uh, taste is another one that we really haven't talked about. So children who are in this developmental phase do lots of exploring with their little mouths. And again, there's such a, a big connection with that, with feeding issues with a child. Children who may have been tube fed or are currently tube fed, and one of our goals for them would be to take, um, be able to eat food orally 
And so they're going to need a lot of uh, exploration with their little mouths to make that possible. So uh, to diminish that gag reflex, what do kids have to do? They have to get something back there, <laughs> their hands or a toy or something, to really normalize that response. And so that's something, too, that as, as speech-language pathologists, if you do feeding, you certainly are aware of that and are talking with that if that's something you treat, too. For those of us who just specialize in language, and, you know, I did, fee I did everything with kids when I was the primary provider, and then I decided I just wanted to focus on language because, you know, you can't be fantastic at every single thing or an expert with everything. So I wanted to just zone in on language so I don't really do any feeding anymore. But it's a really, really, really important part of development, especially for children in this developmental level. Okay, so teething toys. Anything with that texture that a child, that's safe for a child to mouth or chew. That's something that we can do here too. And then feeling. What are different kinds of things that uh, children can feel? So textured blankets, taggy toys, touch and feel books, bendy balls, links, squeezable toys, soft dolls and stuffed animals, vibrating pillows are excellent here. And again, if you want to get that whole list, um, certainly that's in the book. Uh, let's talk about talking. I showed it to you at the beginning of the show, but I want to be sure that I uh, show it to you again because it's just an invaluable resource whether you are a parent or a professional and walking through this even with just one child or the whole caseload of kids so one great thing about this book is it also gives you lots of activities or some different you know I already shared with you that little list that and, and again if you're a therapist and you're kind of at a loss for what information you want to give parents. It's, a, it, it's so great to always have written resources so that they're not only seeing you work with their child and listening to what you're saying to them in the session, but they have something to read after. So a list like that is always a really good idea of things that, and you might, if you're a home therapist, you do a lot of home visits, go through a family's home with them and say, let's pull out what you already have with what a child can see. Let's look at some of these things that are really visually oriented and so that a child can really be stimulated visually. Let's look at your toys and your objects that a kid can hear. Let's look at some different options here. Let's look at all the things that your child could uh, taste or, or use with his little mouth. And again, this doesn't always have to be a teething toy. It can be plastic spoons, you know, from the kitchen. It can be anything that's safe to mouth or chew. And so you'll talk with parents about that and anything that they can feel. So walk through a home with a family and, and do that and look at what they already have. And then you can certainly make some suggestions on top of that, which again, I think a lot of times in this consultative age that we're living in, sometimes therapists who are working in state early intervention programs aren't taking their own materials into families anymore. And so they're really stressing, we're just gonna use what a family already has. And part of me understands that, but a big part of me says, no, <laughs> I can do better than this. I can show them things that I already have, and I can teach them ways to use, use some different things, or I want to help them acquire some different things. And I want, to, I want to show them things that would be good for Christmas presents or birthday presents or when grandma wants to get something or when there's some extra money available for these things. And a lot of times parents don't do those kinds of things because no one's told them to do these kinds of things. And so really, really talk about that with parents too and say, you know, when ne the next time you, you think you're going to buy your child something, let's look at what would be developmentally appropriate here. And let me make some good suggestions so that you can uh, get more bang for your buck. So I wanted to mention that. So let me go ahead and walk you through some of these activities that are 
in uh, let's talk about talking so that you can see the kinds of things that would be beneficial so how do we help a child explore a new toy and this again is kind of the nuts and bolts of uh, helping a child in this developmental level the first thing you're going to do is we talked about proximity, meaning how close you are to a kid. So get down on his or her level. Now, this is a lot harder for me at 53 <laughs> than it was when I was 23 and 33 and even 43. But we have to really, really again get face to face and eye to eye with children at this level and some kids we talked about positioning some kids do better when you hold them and you're exploring a toy together and some kids do better when uh, the child is across from you so that again you're that face to face and eye to eye you're just going to have to experiment and see what to do uh, see what works best and so um let, that's how we're positioned. Let's talk about next what we say. And I've already given you some great examples when we were talking about the cup or I gave that example about the dog. You want to always talk about what they're seeing or what they're hearing and what they're feeling. And remember, why did we say that? It's because we're layering that language. We're giving them the words for that sensory experience. And so when it is something that's a visual toy, we should be saying things like see and look and watch. <laughs> Those words that indicate that we're going to use our eyes for that. When there's a noise, we're going to say, listen, did you hear that? Did you hear it? And so, again, using those specific words for that or when they're holding something. And, again, we're, we're going to talk about this, and I hope that you'll watch the little therapy tip of the week with uh, that accompanies this show. But we're going to talk about uh, when they're touching something. You know, we're going to say, ooh, how's it feel? You know, that's, that's rough or that's cold or that's uh, squishy or whatever that little word is there. Or be sure that you're doing that, too. Now, after you've shown a kid a toy or let him hear it or whatever the sensory experience is that, he's, that you're exposing him to, be sure that you stop and give him time to process that. And if you are a chatty Kathy SLP like me, we over-talk a lot, don't we? <laughs> we do. We think we have to fill every silence with words. And that's just who we are and what we do. But a lot of times we are not giving children uh, time so that they can think and they can really link meaning. And especially with kids who are in this developmental phase, they're going to need that additional processing time. So talk with parents about leaving that time so that a kid can react. And sometimes kids don't react because you're just in there uh, modeling and demonstrating, which you should be. But again, What's the kid's role? What's he supposed to do other than watch the show if you are constantly doing that? So be sure that you're giving him that processing time, especially if it's something that you want him to touch. You know, you've got to do that extra part to get it there and to move it within his uh, reach so that he can do it. Uh, be sure to talk with parents again about modeling that reaction so that after you've given them a toy and shown them how to use it, you know, how should, how, how would a, how should that child react? And so again, it might be, you know, a gasp or, a, you know, we're really looking at it or whatever that would be. And so talk to parents about that exaggerated reaction. Another thing that's really, really good at this level is to start container play. So that's where we gather lots of safe, interesting objects for a child to explore, and we do put them in a container like a bowl or like a white box is actually perfect for this, uh, a baby white box, because there's a lid that opens and closes. And kids at this level, too, 
we certainly want them developing motorically so that they learn how to do lots of different things with their hands but kids sometimes like the container or like you know when a kid gets a present they like the box more than they do the present well it's sort of like that with container play too they really really learn to use the container and so especially if you're doing something like a white box or something that's an interesting um, just whatever the container is too so you could put all kinds of things in them like rattles teething toys plastic animals vehicles plastic keys ball short lengths of ribbon large legos a wooden spoon a set of plastic measuring spoons a small cup uh, laminated pictures different textures of cloth homemade shakers so you can see from that entire list that we want lots of different things for children to explore and use and so uh, place 10 or so of those different items in a container and you're just going to set them in front of the child and then you don't just walk off you do what we were talking about, which is show a child how to use it and really, really model those reactions. And another thing I do with, with container play is act excited and then do a lot of uh, even shaking the container or dumping the container and then putting the objects back in one at a time. And a lot of kids will do that too before they really start to explore. Or as their motor skills improve, that's certainly something that they're going to want to do is uh put it in and take it out. I mean, those are really kind of common uh, baby themes or toddler themes to do when we when we um, use container play with children like this. And again, for those kinds of specific instructions, be sure to take a look at that in Let's Talk About Talking. All right, other things that are just key for this developmental level, an unbreakable mirror, because we want children really looking at themselves and really, again, paying attention to little faces. And there's not a more interesting face for them to pay attention to other than their mother and themselves. <laughs> so unbreakable mirrors are perfect for this developmental level. And then another thing that we don't often do or don't really think about, but a toy that vibrates. So a toy that moves, it might be a pillow, it might might be um, I have a cool one that I kind of inherited when I did this research project with a researcher and it was a vibrating uh, pillow that uh, again kids could touch it and then it would move and respond so super super um, feedback for uh, kids who were in this developmental phase other really common toys would be a rain stick that's a really cool toy to have uh, and then another thing that I like at this developmental level is a little talking animal flashlight. So a flashlight that you can see the light, but there's something to hear there as well. And certainly it's plastic so kids can touch it. So those are great winners, activity winners at this level. So what do you do if you've really worked to help a child begin to react and he's not really reacting? Number one strategy, stick with it. <laughs> Children with developmental delays often need lots and lots and lots of repetition before we start to see that kind of reaction. So do that. Pay attention to what a child almost reacts to and then do more of that. So you think, you know, especially as a therapist, and I'll just be really honest with you. For me, these are the most difficult kinds of kids to treat. And so I know that lots of therapists have we all have our own little specialties or our little niches. And so some therapists, especially therapists that might specialize in feeding and have children with more significant issues, get better at this because they do it all the time. Uh, but, but here, again, sometimes if you don't see children like this as often, you might have to really, really hone your own skills and start to really look at what did he almost like today? What was almost good for him? And think, 
what can I do about that? How can I how can I make that better? Sometimes it's just a matter of making the environment more stimulating overall. And we talked about all the different things that we can do. Sometimes parents get stuck with just sort of thinking they're only thinking about things that their kid can see or they're only thinking about music toys that their child can hear. So be sure that there's some variety. Sometimes more input is not always better. And a kid seems to shut down or get grumpy and he has just a, a really a high alert sensory system. So for those kids, we wanna bring it down a little bit so that they are not constantly shutting out or avoiding. And sometimes it's a matter of timing. So we have to look for the best time of day for a kid so that we can talk with parents about that. Sometimes it means that we change our therapy times so that we go earlier or later when we're really looking at a kid's best responses. So those are all kind of the, the best troubleshooting tips for this developmental level too. And the number one thing here that I should have said at the beginning is rule out any medical reason. So when we're working with a child, and especially when there are significant issues going on, be sure that there's not another uh, underlying problem, that they have you know, an untreated ear infection, that there's a urinary tract problem going on, that there's just something, you know, a GI problem that nobody's identified. So really, really talk with parents about that with that consistent follow-up so that we, again, are doing everything we can to set the stage for uh, that child's language to develop and for him to move on developmentally. All right, so that was skill number one. Next week, we're going to talk about what is probably my, oh, my very favorite thing in the world, and that's helping children learn how to respond to people, because that's when communicating, again, gets, that's our foundational piece for that, right? Right after, or really with responding to events in the environment is helping a child learn to respond to people. So I hope that you'll uh, join me for that show. All right, that's it for today. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and thank you so much for joining me for teachmetotalk.com's podcast. Thank <laughs> you.